listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, everybody. So um, we're having a, a, a guest speaker today, and uh, please forgive my voice um, if it cracks like I'm a 13-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> but we're having a, a dear friend of the mission come and speak to us today. His name's Raymond Morehouse, and a PhD. <laughs> and uh, Raymond is <laughs> Raymond's an awesome guy who lives here in Redlands and. Uh, uh, throughout the community, he's kind of known as the, the the chaplain to the homeless community here in Redlands, and he does a lot of work with Youth Hope, uh, which is a homeless young adult uh, program within the, within our city, and um, and also he he has his, some of his own uh, outreaches that he's started, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about that. And um, but today. Uh, we're excited to hear from him, and, and I just want to read this scripture that's going to lead into his message. Um, it's uh, Luke 4, beginning at 14, if you want to read along. And uh, before we go into the message, we just want to start start this time off with, uh, with, with the word. So, um, so Luke 4, 14 through 21, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Would you welcome my Amen. friend Raymond? Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for the warm welcome. Um, so there's flu going around, which you may hear in my voice. So I'm going to, be, I'm going to sit down, if, if that's all right, <laughs> with you guys. Um, but uh, as, uh, as Jason mentioned, um, I work in the homeless and at-risk community in Redlands. But I also uh, um, have my Ph.D. in biblical studies. So I really like big ideas that bear down, <laughs> that have some crunch to them. So this morning, we're going to be talking about some pretty big ideas, actually. We're going to talk a little bit of, a little bit of theology, a little bit of politics, fasten your seatbelts, <laughs> a little bit of uh, art, history. Um, and so I hope that uh, this not just, that doesn't just expand our intellect, expand our, our, uh, our minds, but also um, has, a, has a tremendous impact on 
some deeply practical things as well. So I want to say all that by way of, of a, uh, a preface. Um, but, so before we start then, let me, let me pray one more time. Father, thank you so much that we can meet together this Sunday morning. Thank you that you have blessed us with so many people with various gifts and talents and abilities that we can worship together, that we can learn together, that we can grow together. Um, I pray this morning as we turn to your word that you would teach us, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth by your spirit as you promised, that we would be challenged, that we would be inspired, uh, perhaps even offended, but that we would grow through the challenge, grow through the discipline, through having our minds and our hearts expanded by the power of your truth. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, it's a new year. And having thrived, or in the case of our family, survived through the Christmas season, we arrive at a time when we recap, we review, we reflect, and we make resolutions. Any, any New Year's resolutions in here? Anyone, anyone still on the road? Still keeping them? All right, I see some pumped fists in the back. At the beginning of a new year, we take stock of our lives. And having done so, we look forward to what's next. And so a new year is a, is a moment that we ask some really important questions. Where have we come from? Who are we now? And where are we going? The answers to these questions take the form of stories, right? We tell stories about our lives. How does the story that you tell about yourself help you to think about who you are today? What do you want the next chapter of that story to look like? How do you want it to go? Is the story of your life a comedy, an epic, a tragedy, a thriller? Are you the hero, the villain? Are you the victim? In your own story? If it were a movie, who would the main characters of your story be? What are the major plot points? What would the audience be looking forward to in the sequel? We could fit everything about ourselves into the, how we answer those questions, how we think about ourselves, how we define ourselves. And as you're thinking about that on a personal level, as you probably already have been over the last few weeks, I want us to consider this as well. How we choose to tell our personal stories depends a great deal on what big story we think that we are a part of. What's the grand narrative that we cast ourselves in? What's the universe we're living inside of? Use the the word universe there in the sense that we might talk about in fiction, the the Marvel universe or the DC universe, the, the, the world of Tolkien, maybe, if you've heard people talk about that. In, in those stories, in those universes, there's lots of individuals, right? Batman, Frodo, whoever it is. But that story is taking place inside of a much bigger world. And that's what I'm getting at with this question. What's the big story that we're a part of? What's the total setting? What stage are we on? Who's behind the scenes? Who's writing the script? And how does that little story interact with all the other stories that are taking place on the same stage? So though at this time of the year we focus on our personal story, we also need to remember that our lives take place in the midst of a much more complex world than just our own experience. So what is that more complex world? 
These are the big, this is the big question. This is sort of the big conceptual question I want to be thinking about this morning. And uh, especially before we turn, and getting that in place before we turn to Luke 4. Because today we are going to be looking at Jesus' words in Luke 4 to find out what I believe ought to be a big part of our answer to that big question. But before turning directly to that text, I want to give us some more sort of real-world examples of the kind of big stories I'm talking about. The first one is contemporary. The second one comes from the ancient Roman world. So those big questions in mind uh, will then turn to the biblical text. So the modern story. In 1992, the year the Cold War ended, political philosopher Francis Fukuyama declared this, quote, what we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Wow. What's he talking about? (laughs) This is the story. This is the big story that he's putting in place. Having won World War II and the Cold War, Western liberal democracy has achieved not only primacy, superiority, but in fact, permanency. It is eternal. The final form of mankind's evolution in which all progress, all progress is deemed beneficial, will shortly become universal. The supremacy of the West thus marks the dawning of a new and perfect age for humanity. In this big story, the end of the Cold War is not just a bit of trivia or a point of data. It has powerful symbolic significance within a myth of progress, this idea that that all movement forward is beneficial. And this is important. This is not merely a story about politics, though it is that. It's a story about everything. And in this Western liberal democracy that we live in, both ends of the political spectrum, even on the most extreme ends, they provide the same, the same, deeply significant answers about who humans are, those who possess inalienable human rights, for instance, who God is, the one who made us this way, and what human flourishing looks like, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? You're going to hear that in any, any civics classroom anywhere in this country. And these answers, I think, are obviously far more than merely political, as they tell us not just what kind of story we're in, but who God is and what characters we're meant to be playing. These are deeply theological answers. They're answers that tell us the way the world is in terms of how God himself made it to be. So if you believe that this is the big story that you're in, then that will have a dramatic effect on how you tell your own personal story. For example, someone who has come to believe that the advent and ascension of Western liberal democracy marks the the, the apex, the climax of human flourishing has probably found the last few years to be a bit disconcerting. This is especially true of those like me who grew up in the 80s and 90s, believing that our way was not just perfect, right, and good, but in fact permanent, eternal. It's disconcerting because the big story about the Western way of life has turned out to not be quite true. 
Fukuyama himself, the political philosopher who wrote that quote in an interview just last year, has had to admit that his declaration is false. We have not reached the end of history. Among many reasons that he cites, the biggest one is that alternative systems have persisted. Billions, billions of people have persisted in telling their story differently. So the point I'm trying to make here is not to make a value judgment necessarily about different political theories, but just to highlight the fact that the way that we tell our story, our personal stories, depends on what big story we believe ourselves to be living inside of. So again, what big story are you inside of? Turning to another example, an ancient story. Fukuyama was not the first to believe that he had witnessed the pinnacle of human achievement, the permanency of a particular way of life. Moving backwards in time, consider another ancient example of a big story. Do these words sound familiar? This is a quote. Divine providence, who orders our lives, in display of concern and generosity towards us, has ordained our lives with the highest good, the exalted king, who has been filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity. In him, we and our descendants have been given a savior. He has made war to cease and will put everything in peaceful order. This king, when he appeared, transcended all expectations of all who anticipated the gospel, not only by surpassing the benefits conferred by his predecessors, but by leaving those who come after him no hope of surpassing his achievements. Therefore, because the birthday of our God, this king, signals the beginning of the gospel for the world, we will reckon time itself from the date of his nativity. Amen, right? Yeah, well, many of the terms in that quote, Savior, King, Peace, Gospel, have rich biblical meanings. This bit of writing is not actually from the Bible. It was written in approximately 9 BC, 5 to 10 years before the birth of Christ, by a man named Paulus Fabius Maximus. And this wasn't just a piece of propaganda in a private letter. He's referring to a public inscription from across the Roman Empire. Paulus was a close friend of Caesar Augustus, the king who in this inscription is described as God, whose birth marks the beginning of a new age. It's hard to understate the importance of Augustus for Rome's big story. If you had traveled to Rome with Paul, you could have visited the Field of Mars, home of some of the greatest monuments of the Roman Empire. At the center of the field, you may not be able to see it because the slide here is pretty small, but at the center of this field, you would have found the Solarium Augusti. This was a massive sundial, and this thing was laid out so precisely that it wouldn't just tell you the, the time of day, but the date of the year. This is how accurate that they had measured, measured uh, the movement of the sun down to. The center of this giant sundial was an obelisk penetrating a globe, and this represented the phallus of Augustus fertilizing the world. If you don't know what that is, ask your neighbor. The other word is not safe for church. Uh, Just across the field was an ornate building. It's down just on the, I guess it'd be your right-hand side. There's this building just to the right that was the altar of Augustine peace. And the field was laid out so precisely that on September 23rd, 
the shadow of the obelisk would point directly through the entrance of that altar. That day, the 23rd of September, is, also, uh, is not only Augustus's official birthday, but also the fall equinox, the celebration of the end of harvest and the beginning of a time of rest and plenty. So the harvest has come in, all the work is done, the barns are full. So what's the big story that's being told here by these monuments? By his very birth, Augustus has inaugurated the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, world peace, the age of the God King who penetrated the world and brought forth permanent peace and prosperity. He has fulfilled all expectations. The perfection of his achievements leaves nothing undone. The harvest has come in. The barns are full. This is the Roman version of the end of history. This is literally, in the words of Paulus that we just read, the gospel of the Roman Empire to the world. Now, before we pass this off as a bunch of ancient pagan ignorant superstition, consider these more recent words about another field of monuments. Linton Weeks writes this, if the U.S. is the symbolic epicenter of human endeavor, and if Washington is the symbolic epicenter of the U.S., and if the National Mall is the symbolic epicenter of Washington, then that puts it smack dab in the symbolic epicenter of the world. And at the center of that epicenter, we have another great obelisk, and this one's bigger, commemorating the father of another nation. In the background, you see the Capitol Rotunda, and less well-known is another monument that's inside that rotunda. This is titled, go to the next slide, the Apotheosis of Washington. That, that funny word there, Greek, apotheosis, literally means the deification of Washington. This 4,700 square foot painting, so what, I don't know what the size of this room is, probably twice the size of this room, depicts, literally depicts Washington's deification. He sits, the only figure in this whole painting, sits in power presiding over the gods, a rainbow below his feet. He's 15 feet tall in this painting. Can you imagine walking, walking into the Capitol building with Paul or Peter or, or Jesus and trying to explain this? It'd be a little awkward. So the Romans, the point here, the point I'm trying to make here, and we should feel a little uncomfortable, perhaps a little offended already by now. Who's this Raymond guy? What is he doing to us? The point I'm trying to make here is that the Romans are not so hard to understand. Like everyone else, they wanted everyone in the world to believe their version of the big story. This universe that you're living in is ours. That's what these monuments, that's what these inscriptions, that's what these symbols communicate. Nevertheless, the Romans found that despite generous portions of prosperity, propaganda, and violence, many people did not share their vision of reality. And one of the most persistently stubborn groups was the Jews. So with these examples of big stories in mind, we're going to turn to another big story. While the Romans were busy erecting massive monuments, a Galilean peasant was going head-to-head with the ancient serpent, the great dragon, the deceiver, 
the power behind the false gods and would-be kings of the world. From this conflict, Jesus emerges victorious. And in the power of the Spirit of the one true God, he continues his public ministry. Returning to Nazareth, he is asked to read from the scroll of Isaiah. His text, deliberately chosen, is from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Closing this book, rolling up the scroll, more literally, Jesus sits down to teach. And he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The end result is an uproar and ultimately an attempt on Jesus' life. The whole episode is very, very interesting, but I want to keep focusing on this idea of the big story that Jesus has just claimed is his own. Therefore, our focus is going to be more on Isaiah, actually, than, than Luke, but always keeping in mind that it is this Jesus of Nazareth who claims that his speaking of the quoted words of Isaiah are his own and that he is their fulfillment. In other words, the voice speaking in Isaiah 61 is his, and he is actually announcing that the favorable year of the Lord has arrived. So what does it mean that this this year has been announced? To answer this question, we have to recall the wider context of the book of Isaiah. In many ways, uh, and people have called Isaiah uh, this for many reasons, Isaiah is a fifth gospel. You might even call it the first or the original gospel. The Greek translation of Isaiah, which is older even than the Roman inscription I read, is where the authors of the New Testament got the word uh, gospel, evangelion, to describe their proclamation. It comes from the book of Isaiah. As Jesus quotes here, the uh, the one anointed, literally the Christ, preaches this good news. The beginning of his ministry is the beginning of the gospel, of the good news. So what's the big story in Isaiah? which explains why this good news is both good and news. To answer this, we must remember that Isaiah tells the story of Israel's catastrophic failure to be faithful to Yahweh and the results of that failure. This is laid out in Isaiah 1, which serves as an introduction to the whole book. Isaiah opens with a crushing indictment. Israel has abandoned God for idols. They have perverted justice embraced spiritual, political, and judicial corruption. They favor the bribes of the rich over the rights of the poor. Their rulers are of Sodom, and the people are of Gomorrah. Thus, God himself has turned against Israel, giving the nation over to its worst enemies until corruption is totally consumed. God deals with the idolatrous exactly as he promised he would, eternally promised in the covenant. They are visited with all of the covenantal curses of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In real time, these covenantal curses unfold with progressive ferocity, ultimately culminating in the total destruction of the nation, an event often referred to as the exile. The nation Israel functionally functionally ceases to exist. No capital, no army, no king, and most importantly, no temple. The presence of God has departed from the midst of the covenant people. 
This is the great tragedy that Israel's prophets refer to again and again and again. And it is to this catastrophic state of affairs that the anointed one of Isaiah 61 speaks. God has made deeper promises about the restoration of his covenant people. Though Israel has functionally disappeared, her future is secured by these deeper promises of hope and a future. The God of Israel can raise the dead. As the prophet Hosea declared, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. So, who then are the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 that the, that the Christ speaks to? In the context of Israel's prophecies of restoration, they are the ones who have forsaken God and have been justly, justly dragged into poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression. They are those who, Isaiah says, have received double for all of their sins. They are the ones whose iniquities have made a separation between them and their God. Now, it's important to be clear at this point that this interpretation of the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, etc., it's highly contextual. What, uh, what Isaiah is saying and what I don't want you to hear me saying is that the identity, uh, uh, what you can't say is that the identity of these persons, it, it can't be taken to be a way of explaining all poverty, all oppression, all blindness, etc. Isaiah is not saying that all people everywhere who are poor have been cursed by God. On the other hand, however, we can't go to the opposite end the opposite extreme, and completely disconnect someone's circumstances from their behavior. In, in the work that I do, this is, this is su- such an important uh, and nuanced distinction to make. And I encounter individuals who are in difficult circumstances who have found themselves there through no fault of their own, right? And it's, it would be profoundly false and profoundly cruel in those situations for me or for anyone to say, your life is hard because of something you did. It's your fault. On the other hand, I also meet individuals who are living in terrible circumstances because they persist in making vicious and wicked decisions. And it would be profoundly false and profoundly cruel for me to say to such an individual, your behavior has nothing to do with your life, with the circumstances you found yourselves in. Where it gets really complicated is often both evaluations, both, both interpretations are true of the same person. That's when ministry gets really tough. Because human lives are complicated, and the world cannot be neatly divided up into victims and victimizers, innocent and guilty. I don't want to belabor that point too much, but I want, it needs to come through. Uh, because this is part of the reason why the next chapter in, in Israel's history is so profoundly moving. I do want to say just on the tail end of that, if you have more questions about it, please talk to me about it. It's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but moving forward, Israel's story, up to this point, it has been one of tragedy and exile and curse. They are waiting for this time of cursing to come to an end. 
The three days of Hosea need to be fulfilled. The favorable year of the Lord needs to arrive. They dwell in great darkness, Isaiah says. But as we have just celebrated this Advent season, a great light has now dawned. Jesus, the latest son of a failed dynasty, born into a God-cursed and shattered nation, announces that it is He, He who stands before them, who is the Anointed One. It is He who declares the good news. And what is this? It is the announcement that the favorable year of the Lord has arrived. The time of Israel's punishment has come to an end. Yahweh Himself will bring about salvation. He is returning to dwell with His people. As the prophet foretold, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings the good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the gospel that Jesus is announcing. Your God reigns. Or as Jesus will later announce in Luke, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Returning to Luke then, as Jesus' ministry unfolds, the people around him found out, usually to their dismay, that the arrival of the kingdom of God looked a lot different than what they expected. In short, many people wanted a renewal of the old covenant, not a brand new one. They wanted pride and place in the old creation, not a new creation under the lordship of Jesus. Perhaps they wanted somebody like Caesar Augustus. Jesus doesn't deliver And that is at least part of why people are so upset with him. But I want to make this clear. The problem wasn't exactly that people wanted an earthly kingdom and Jesus was announcing a heavenly one. It wasn't that people wanted a Messiah who would actually clean up the mess and Jesus wasn't following through. The problem isn't exactly what Jesus doesn't do. Because if this was the issue, then Jesus could easily have been ignored. The problem was that Jesus really did want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He really was going to start cleaning up the mess the world, not least of all Israel, had found itself in. The sharp point of the problem is what Jesus is doing. His way of doing things is what people then, as now, find profoundly offensive. Starting with the fact that in Luke 4 itself, the Messiah has way too much dirt under his fingernails. Isn't this the the carpenter? He built my cabinets. And the kingdom of God includes a lot more people than many Israelites were willing to accept. Nevertheless, this was indeed the beginning of the year of the Lord's favor, the dawning of the promised light. So this is the big story that Jesus is fulfilling. This is the big story that we who are loyal to Jesus Christ, are a part of. This is our story. That's not to say that everything is right in the world and that we have arrived at the perfection of all things. No matter what your eschatology, what you think about the end times, there is an element of already and not yet. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And yet he also can say, with anxious longing, creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. We have to live in that tension. 
Nevertheless, we must also take our Lord and our God at His word when He tells us that the kingdom of God is really in our midst. In the first century, as now, that flies in the face of contemporary wisdom. The Romans, as we saw, had a much different big story. The fullness of time occurred with the birth of the God King, Caesar Augustus, and his accomplishments are so great that not only can they not be outdone, they don't need to be outdone. Permanent peace, unending prosperity. This is what, this was the dominant narrative swirling around the early church, and, and against it, they had to speak a better word. That inscription that we showed on the screen, that comes from modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was called Ionia, the town in those days, but it was highly likely that, that Paul would have preached there with an inscription just off to one side with the same words, Savior, Gospel, Peace, King. And he says, I have a different King, a different Gospel, a different kind of peace, a different kind of salvation to announce. If you don't think people picked up on that, it's just, it's just right there. The mausoleum, the tomb of Augustus, is now literally an overgrown ruin filled with trash. And billions of people worship that peasant from Galilee who defeated the great serpent. 2,000 years later, a political philosopher witnessing the dismantling of the Soviet Union would declare the supremacy of a system rather than a person, but with much the same purpose. Western liberal democracies have achieved permanency and guarantee prosperity. 25 years later, this declaration, declaration is already being called into question. So we have to ask ourselves this question here on the edge of another year. What big story has framed our lives and given it meaning? What stage are we on and who do we believe is behind the scenes? At this point in the sermon, we're, we're supposed to be getting to the, the application part, the so what, so what now part. But the thing about the good news is it's not just good advice. It's an announcement of a new reality. For those whose lives are hidden in Christ, as Paul describes us, the present is really and truly the favorable year of the Lord. The question of application is this, are you ready? Are we ready? to begin living our own personal stories within this larger frame? Are we prepared to live in such a way that we are really and truly joining God in His work of making all things new through the person and work of Christ? We do this in various ways. Of course, through a Sunday gathering, but in our home groups, in our families, our fellowship throughout life. In the coming year, we can foster the numerous and various gifts that we've received. We can press forward obediently into what God has called us to do. We can raise our children in this reality. We can complete the education that God has called us to. We can labor well in the work put in front of us. We can grow in maturity. We can be at work amongst the homeless and the at risk. To the one born blind through no fault of his own and to those whose blindness is, re- is the result of darkness brought about by their own desperate wickedness, we can declare that the light has dawned. 
I say we here intentionally because we have all a part to play in this. Together, cooperatively, collectively. But these meetings, these projects, these programs, this life together, it's all more than mere social gathering, right? Or, or God forbid, the, the appendage to an otherwise intact political life, a great institution of democracy, for instance. We are in various ways living in the reality of the gospel, that by the grace of God, through the resurrected Christ, the kingdom of God is available. As theologian Russell Moore declares, the church is to show a different path than the world because the church is the place where Jesus now reigns. The church is the outpost of the future, the colony of the kingdom in the midst of this fallen, violent, devil-haunted universe. Jesus rules in the church by reconciling sinners to himself through the gospel and then reconciling them one to another through the gospel. The unity of the church isn't the result of a program. It's the result of the invading reign of Christ Jesus, tearing down carnal divisions and creating peace where there was once chaos. This is the big story. I love this description of the church as an outpost of the future. We don't have to fret about being on the right or wrong side of history because we already know what the end of history looks like. It will be the final subjection of all things to God the Father when the glory of God will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. In closing, Russell Moore again inspires us with these words. We are part of a kingdom a kingdom we see from afar, and a kingdom we see assembling all around us in miniature, in these outposts of the future called the church. By putting kingdom first, we can speak from consciences, consciences formed by the future to know how to recognize what matters, peace, justice, righteousness, and how to recognize who matters the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, the captive, the powerless. And as we do, we remember like our Lord where we came from and where we are going. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Jesus, thank you so much for your work in announcing the gospel dying on the cross and being raised to the new life that you now welcome us into. God, as we think about who we are as an individual, as a church, where our identity is found, where our work, our marching orders come from, I pray that with each day you would lead us and guide us by your spirit to find that identity, that story, that grand narrative in you and in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.